Good morning, everybody. That wasn't too bad. My name is A.J. Rinaldi. For those of you who do not know me, uh, I am one of the pastors on staff. And uh, I'm sure you're intrigued by today's sermon title. Uh, Jana Lohman, who's also on staff with us here, uh, didn't know that I was preaching today. But she came in and saw the bulletin cover. She said, yeah, I was just wondering who's preaching today. And then she saw it and said, oh, it's A.J. Uh, she just knew from that right there. Um, it's very important that everybody understand today what we're covering, this is not comprehensive. There's a wealth of material out there on this subject. And if you're interested and want to do additional research on your own, let me caution you. Be sure to find material that's from a reputable, orthodox, evangelical, biblical source. There's a lot of junk out there, so tread carefully. What we're looking at today can be found in the theological discipline known as demonology. Now, as I've said, this is not a comprehensive study of demonology. That would take weeks. We're just scratching the surface. My objective is for you to leave here with a newfound confidence in who you are as a child of God and how you can face and defeat the enemy free from any fears you may have. Perhaps some of you will be awakened to a new understanding of spiritual warfare. I certainly hope so. Because as Piper said in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, life is war. That's not all it is. No, I haven't got any power up here, guys. That's not all it is, but it is always that. He says, but most people do not believe this in their hearts. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not wartime. War is brutal, violent, ugly. Spiritual warfare is no different. There is a constant struggle going on, so I want to be clear. Today's message contains images, illustrations, and concepts that may be unsettling to children. If you have children with you, you might consider taking them to one of our wonderful classes in the education building. That's actually, that warning's actually in your bulletin as well. Perhaps you've already seen it. And actually, that might apply to some adults in here as well. <laughs> um, I'd say perhaps this is not R-rated, but it's a hard PG-13 for sure. Well, this past summer, I did a study on the book of Job with our Element College group. And we actually went through every chapter and every verse. It was awesome. And our students studied really well. Now, in case you're not familiar, the opening chapter includes this scene from what could only be understood as occurring at the throne of God. Job chapter 1, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. When we had completed our study, one of our thoughtful students came and said something that really piqued my interest. Bridget Bowman pulled me aside at our summer retreat and said something like this. 
She said, reading that scene in Job where Satan and some demons are actually talking to God and then tormenting Job, how does all this work? We hear about the devil and demons, but I've always wondered what they really are and what do they actually do? I want to know more. What a great question. She inspired, inspired me to do some research and prepare this message. Incidentally, one of the realities we get a glimpse of in this scene is the fact that the devil and demons are not roasting in hell yet. They have free reign over this earth and access to heaven, even right now. Now, in pursuit of biblical demonology, I don't recommend these books. However, as semi-realistic entertainment, I definitely recommend them. While they present spiritual warfare in a compelling way, they're not to be taken as theological dissertations. I'm sure many of you have read these books. They're excellent. On the other hand, we can get a somewhat accurate view of angels and demons as reflected here on earth in some of our own experiences. I am convinced that dogs are angels in disguise. <laughs> if you know me at all, you know how much I love dogs. I'll let this speak for itself. Okay, seriously though, let's get to know a little bit about our enemy, shall we? So Merrill Unger is one of the foremost scholars on demonology, and he says this, even many spiritual believers are unable to wage a successful war against this army of wicked spirits through lack of knowledge of what is involved. Many shrink from the subject altogether, insisting that so long as Christ is preached, occupation with Satan and demons is unnecessary and spiritually unhealthy. All the while, however, Satan is continuously gaining advantage because of the believer's ignorance. Now, the controversial French writer Charles Baudelaire has been quoted and translated different ways over the years. Perhaps you've never heard that name. But essentially, he coined the idea the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Sorry, guys, it wasn't Kaiser Soze who said it first. <laughs> Some of you get that. Good. Last hour, nobody got it. I'm convinced it probably applies to many Christ followers as well. So instead of ignoring the enemy, we must know them. Another well-known saying is from the art of war. I'm sure some of you had to study this in school. It is used to instruct just about every military officer in the world. In the art of war, we read, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. If you are a believer in Jesus, I hope you know who you are in him. That's primary. However, if you do need to grow in, in that confidence of knowing who you are in Christ, I do suggest you sign up for our Search for Significance class that's starting in a few weeks. There's more information on that in the back of your bulletin. Okay, commercial over. So today we're getting to know the enemy. All right, unfortunately, we have not got time to go into a comprehensive etymology of all the Hebrew and Greek terms used to describe Satan and other demons. But hopefully this can give you an idea of how translators land on certain terms throughout Scripture. The Hebrew ha-shatan is descriptive of Satan personally, not a generic demon or devil. It's like the Satan. It's kind of like our phrase, the man, when you know exactly who the man is, not that ambiguous use uh, to describe a collective, but to des designate one person. Shatan without the ha 
could be a general term for adversary, accuser, deceiver, that sort of thing depending on context. It could even apply to a non-supernatural person. Now the Greek diabolos is specifically the devil. You can see it's the root of diabolical. And daemonos is demon. In English, various names or titles are given to Satan and demons depending on context and translation. Uh, this is most of them, but not all. I'm sure you recognize many of those. Our commonly used English translations, such as the Christian Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the Net Bible, NASB, you know, etc., many that you know, they're very reliable, so we need not belabor the point. It is important, however, to understand Satan's positional standing among supernatural beings. He is simply a demon. He is, of course, the general, the head of all demons, the one who led the rebellion, causing his fall along with other angels. However, this is not an accurate perspective. He is not the opposite of God, possessing the same qualities as the creator of the universe. While often portrayed in this manner, rather than being equal but opposite to God, he's more like equal yet opposite to the archangel Michael, who we will read more about later. May we continually be reminded of these truths. As Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Daniel writes, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And of course, let's not forget, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He has never relinquished complete sovereignty. He is not locked in an epic battle of good versus evil. Sorry to disappoint you fans of high fantasy and some spiritual fiction. The end of the story is already written. Spoiler, Satan doesn't even have a chance. Now, unless the text specifically calls for it, when we're discussing spiritual warfare, the devil and demons will be viewed through the same lens. So let's begin our journey to a deeper understanding of demons. In this excellent book, Silencing Satan, I mentioned earlier if you were wanting to do some more research, I am going to be quoting a few volumes this morning um, that I do consider to be helpful sources. All right, in Silencing Satan, we read, Satan and the demons are rarely mentioned in the Old Testament. Yet demons were a very real problem to the people in the ancient world. Many magical practices operated by means of demons. After the Israelites dispossessed the inhabitants of the land, their law prohibited them from practicing a variety of black arts using Hebrew words that translate variously as divination, sorcery, interpreting omens, and practicing witchcraft. Furthermore, Unger says this, Magic, divination, sorcery, necromancy are so inextricably connected with idolatry and so inseparably interwoven with each other that it is impossible in every case to draw definite lines of demarcation between them. Like idolatry itself, of which they are but particular manifestations, demonism is their source and dynamic. Don't miss that point. When the Old Testament speaks of idolatry, which it often does, that may not in all instances, but may be in reference to the worship of false gods, which are actually demons. In most cases, the idolatry is accompanied by divination, which is foretelling the future, and other forms of magic specifically prohibited by the law. Perhaps one of the most sinister tools of demons is necromancy. Now, necromancy, in case you've not heard that term before, is the attempt 
to communicate with the dead. Often necromancy and divination go hand in hand as the individual attempting to contact the dead is inquiring of future events. You may be familiar with the story of Saul summoning Samuel in 1 Samuel 28. Well, why aren't we going to expound on that passage? Because in that case, guess what? The Lord really did send Samuel back to prophesy to Saul. That was not the work of a demon. We know this from context. Not only did Samuel identify himself, but the medium was shocked to see that Samuel actually appeared. Now, incidentally, the Ouija board has a somewhat sinister origin. It was developed in the mid-19th century during the spiritualist craze as a way to assist mediums to communicate with the dead. Prior to this, they were using primitive forms like knocking on tables. Maybe some of you have seen, have seen scenes from movies like that where the table would shake and knock and that sort of thing. So they said, we've got to come up with something better. And so they actually came up with the Ouija board. They do not communicate with the dead. They don't. But they do open a dangerous door that you don't want to open. I'm just, a little side note, after first service this morning, I had somebody come up to me and say, I'm so glad that you brought this message. I want to tell you a story. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My family were spiritualists. We had a Ouija board. We had tarot cards. We consulted mediums. And he said, that was our, basically our religion. And he said, it's for real. If, and the concern was, look, a lot of believers may not understand this. He said, when our family started becoming Christian, and I believe he said it was his aunt was the first one, he said, quite literally, all hell broke loose in the house. He said, it was, it was palpable and evident that we were under demonic attack. And as the next family member would be saved, and the next, and the next, it would intensify. He said, so this is real stuff. Well, of course we know it's real stuff. In the the book of Acts, Paul encountered a spirit of divination in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, we read, Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, this spirit in the Greek uh, is literally called a python spirit, and it originates within the city of Delphi. Apollo was supposed to reside there within a python. They believed the priestess at Delphi would be possessed by Apollo and reveal the future. Now, again, going back to the roots of idolatry and false gods and demonism, this was not the act of Apollo, but of a demon. How do we know? Well, as she followed, oh, sorry, as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. This demon clearly knew who Paul was and sought to harass him. Perhaps in an effort to discredit the gospel, of course not to draw attention to it. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They recognized the reality that this spirit truly had been in this woman. So divination, necromancy, and magic in general are some of the ways we see evidence of demonic activity, which can include inhabitation. I'm sure some of you have been wondering about that. When are we going to get to that? That's sometimes termed possession, but more on that later. In the book of Daniel, we see a glimpse of demonic dominion. Dominion, which is demonic influence over a region or government. Daniel writes, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. 
His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Daniel is describing here his vision of an angel. It's interesting to note what the angel says in this short passage. He says, I have come because of your prayers, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now, this is one place where I, I imagine maybe Frank Peretti, who wrote This Present Darkness and many other books, got some ideas about spiritual warfare that's unseen by us. The angel is describing a struggle with a demon, here with the title Prince of Persia, that only ended when Michael, the aforementioned archangel, came to assist this messenger to Daniel. He said, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. No one has the courage to support me against those princes except Michael, your prince. The princes of Persia and Greece here are demons who have specific assigned dominions. These are the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness and evil spiritual forces in the heavens Paul instructs us about time and again concerning spiritual warfare. Now, accuser is one of the titles assigned to Satan. In Zechariah, we see this illustrated plainly, along with a really cool picture of the redemption to come from the death and resurrection of Christ. This is so awesome. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Aren't we all that? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Again, that pretty much describes us. Those filthy clothes are our sin. This is so obvious even to the unschooled observer, and it's so cool. So check it out. The angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. Wow. I mean, have you even ever read this passage? The accuser's accusations are canceled way before cancel culture. Now, tempter is another title assigned to the devil and his demons. Aside from the original temptation in the garden, this is perhaps the most well-known example of his attempt to seduce anyone. And here, it's the Holy One. So in Luke 4, we read that Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, of course, he knew he was the Son of God. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority, because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem to stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. Remember, we're getting to know our enemy. So what I want you to take away from, from this is his strong desire and powerful ability to tempt you. 
As he tempted Jesus, so he will tempt you. Did you notice the phrase, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Satan is sometimes referred to as the God of this world, that's little g, of course, or God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4, we read, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In God's sovereignty, he allows for this for the time being. Now, more on how to resist the devil's rule later. But first, it's coming. You're thinking, this isn't so scary. Well, if you're still here, be forewarned. I don't want any emails about how I scared you or your kids, okay? Get out while you can. Okay, here's where we are so far. Demons are finite, evil spirits who exist under the sovereignty and supremacy of the infinite spirit. Attempts to describe them as impersonal powers or psychological manifestations do harm to the integrity of the biblical text. Demons are real beings, Satan chief among them. Make no mistake, they aim to hurt the testimony of your faith, nothing more. This morning, I believe you will leave here with the confidence to defeat every single spiritual attack you face if you want to. But first, we need to take on some misconceptions and put the caricatures our culture has behind us, okay? First, we have the funny devils. Goofy, grossly exaggerated, and sometimes lovable ideas about demons. Not even close to reality. So, anybody remember this skit from Saturday Night Live? The, the devil here is defending himself on people's court for breach of contract. Somebody had sold their soul to him and he didn't deliver. It's, it's kind of a funny skit. Anyway, um, so, so goofy, grossly exaggerated, funny devils, not even close to reality. Here we go. You have your scary devils. Terrifying creatures who rule the night, prey on the innocent, and can only be stopped by ritual or special religious combat. They can only be stopped by ritual or special religious combat. And then there's the handsome devils, probably more realistic than the others, but nevertheless not really biblically accurate. So where does that leave us? We, God's church around the world, have a problem. We tend to express a view of the demonic that is more in line with our culture than our Bible. While the Bible gives examples of demonic activities, it does not categorically list every scheme and design of Satan and demons through all of history. But a study of the demonic in the Bible should supply us a framework for discernment that we may live wisely. This is another one of those books that I recommend, Demonology for the Global Church by Scott McDonald. Remember this well. Things that seem good aren't always from the Lord, and things that seem bad aren't always from the devil. I'll say that again. Things that seem good aren't always from the Lord, and things that seem bad aren't always from the devil. I think most of us want to camp out with these guys. It comforts us, it makes us laugh, and it helps us to focus on the demonic without fear. So let's move boldly to face the enemy. And who better to learn from than he who is in us, our Redeemer? Matthew 8. Matthew 8, we read, When he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. 
Suddenly they shouted, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. And in Mark 1, we read this. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Don't miss a key point in these passages, all right? The demons recognized Jesus. They knew who he was, and they were terrified because they knew his authority and power. Furthermore, they were shocked to see he had come. See, demons don't have omniscience and omnipotence like the Holy Trinity. They must have a sense of dread in knowing their fate, but they don't know the when. In Mark 1, we also read, When evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, throughout the Gospels, the difference between healing and driving out demons is made clear. If physical ailments were considered to be misunderstood as the work of demons, the New Testament would not be so clear time after time in describing the various miracle, miraculous works of Jesus. In Luke 9, we see that Jesus gave that same power and authority to his apostles and subsequently to 72 of his disciples as well. We read, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. See, in this last example, there's a message to be learned. Some things only Christ can do as in the case of this demon-possessed boy. And there's a stern rebuke there about relying on his power and not on our own. Aren't we so tempted to do that? I know I am. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We continue into Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. 
He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Satan falling from heaven here most likely is a reference to the work Jesus is accomplishing in his earthly ministry and accomplished in his death and resurrection in that he defeated the power of Satan, essentially leading to his fall and ultimate destruction. Through his victory, we are empowered and we are redeemed. Don't miss this point. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's primary. Now, all of these events demonstrate the fact that Jesus has supreme authority over all things. That includes demons. Never forget this. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Let's be clear. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Jesus relied on no right or magical words he simply commanded and the demons obeyed. Even later when the disciples cast out demons, they apparently commanded the demons in Jesus' name. But the name was not enough. It was not enough. A personal relationship with Jesus was also essential. Now as I contemplated this point, I was reminded of a scene from an 80s comedy horror movie that some of you may have seen called Fright Night. Now if you're not familiar, I'll set this up for you just real briefly. The story goes, there's a teenage boy and a mysterious man moves in next door. Well, the boy witnesses the man basically transforming to like a vampire. So he tries to convince everyone around him, this guy's a vampire. And of course, nobody believes him. Well, he, he's finally able to convince a late night horror movie host to come check it out. Well, they discover the truth. And anyway, they decide to go after this vampire. So that that's kind of sets up uh, this initial scene. So check out this clip. Back, spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? You have to have faith for this to work on me, Mr. Okay, see, the power and necessity of faith and complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit is clear throughout the New Testament. When people tried to act without it, the results were very unsuccessful and sometimes tragic. In Acts chapter 19, we read about some Jewish exorcists which there actually was such a thing. These were itinerant exorcists that would go around casting out evil spirits. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Shiva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. 
The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul. That really means I've heard of Paul. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. You see, we tend to romanticize the demon hunters and spiritual warriors, assigning all kinds of special relics, rituals, and weapons to their efforts. When again, all we really need is faith. Faith. Check it out. Did anybody else notice the first time around was a very ornate crucifix, and this time around it was a simple wooden cross? You see, the single most powerful passage concerning spiritual warfare and the believer is, no doubt, Ephesians 6. Now, of course, there could be an entire sermon series on this passage alone. For our purpose today, let's read it and recognize the impact Paul's message has on our stand as we face the enemy. He writes, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. We do not do war against flesh and blood. And our weapons, truth, righteousness, readiness with the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Lutzer writes, Demons work through temptations common to us all. Moral impurity, lack of forgiveness, doctrinal heresies, and even politics. 
We do not have to see demons in order to realize they work behind the scenes. And we had better take Paul's admonition to put on the full armor of God. Remember, as Piper said, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Now, let's be clear as to what type of war. 2 Corinthians 10, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful, powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, with that in mind, let's defeat the enemy. Spoiler alert, they lose. God calls us to faithfulness, to participate in the battle, because the battle belongs to him. And believer, we are his chosen. We have enough information to be equipped as his chosen. As John Calvin writes, being forewarned of the constant presence of an enemy the most daring, the most powerful, the most crafty, let us not allow ourselves to be overtaken by sloth or cowardice, but on the contrary, with minds aroused and ever on the alert, let us stand ready to resist, and knowing that this warfare is terminated only by death, let us study to persevere. Above all, fully conscious of our weakness and want of skill, let us invoke the help of God and attempt nothing without trusting in Him, since it is His alone to supply counsel and strength and courage and arms. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Eternal life for the believer indwelt with the Holy Spirit begins the moment you trust in Christ, not at death. Therefore, you are equipped from day one to take hold of that eternal life and fight the good fight. I was discussing this topic with my good friend and one of our elders, Thomas Campbell. We were discussing the point that believers cannot be directly inhabited by demons, and the influence of demons on the believer is very limited. But nevertheless, because spiritual warfare is a real thing, he says, yeah, he can't take us out of the kingdom. We're secure, but he can make us ineffective. Their goal is to attack our faith. Therefore, be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. We win. Amen. Well, what's, what's, what's the most impactful tool that demons use. Again, I was having a conversation with another dear friend of mine, Paul Hahn. He said this, fear is the primary underlying tool to destroy faith. And losing faith is to lose hope. Therefore, fear leads to hopelessness. But listen, Christ follower, God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Did you catch that? James doesn't say, resist the devil and he'll get bored. Resist the devil, he'll wait around. Resist the devil, he'll back off. No. Resist the devil and he will flee, literally run away. Greater is the one that is in you than is in the world. Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. The very power of Christ is in you. And incidentally, you don't need to chant, the power of Christ compels you over and over. Anybody get that reference? Because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, Christians need not fear the demons, wait for archangels to save them, recite carefully worded prayers, or perform rituals. See, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. However fearsome demons may be, the person who walks with Jesus has nothing to fear. Now, let's wrap this up. This isn't a message on eschatology, study of end times, or revelation. So as tempting as it was for me to take another hour or two and expound on these next few passages, I'm definitely out of time. So we're going to let them speak for themselves. Let's look at Revelation 12 first. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Don't let that go by you. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you will dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury. Because he knows his time is short. I love this. Michael's all over this battle. Commissioned by God as are we, destined for victory as are we. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. No battle. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Spiritual warfare is real. It's important that we know what we are up against, how to face them, and fight the good fight with the confidence that we can and will win. 
Do not live in fear. Live in faith. And by your faith, you will defeat the enemy in every battle you face. As Billy Graham said, I've used this quote before. I use it almost every day in different conversations. Billy Graham said, I've read the last page of the Bible. It's all going to turn out all right. Now, since we have no announcements this morning, our prayer team, would you come forward? And everybody, if you'll stand, we will be dismissed together with prayer. And if you do need to pray, please come forward. There'll be somebody up here to pray with you. And I do want to say one last thing. If you're here today and you have no idea what we are talking about when we talk about being redeemed by Christ, please understand that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and it is by trusting in Him alone that you can have eternal life. And if this has piqued your interest in that reality, then please find somebody around here that has a name tag or one of us up here, and we would be more than happy to talk to you more about that and answer any questions you have. Don't leave here today without at least getting those questions answered. On that, let's pray together and be dismissed. Lord, we praise you today that you are sovereign over all, that the battle belongs to you. At the same time, we, we praise you and thank you that you have called us to be a part of that that you have called us to be a part of your kingdom. Now, may we go boldly from here with the confidence that our faith conquers all, that it is only our faith in the redeeming work of Christ, Lord. We thank you for that and pray that our words and our deeds would all bring you all of the honor and all of the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great Labor Day, everybody.